Hello, friends. So good to be with you as we gather together from our different locations uh, to come before God. And you know, if you've been with us here at Southview for long, you will notice that we come to this book, these spiritual writings, a lot. This book is really at the heart of our worship gatherings. Every time we gather on site or online, we come to the Bible. I mean, it's at the heart of our ministries, to our children, to our youth. We really offer free Bibles to anyone who need ones. And we emphasize that reading, reflecting upon, applying God's word in our lives is really one of the core practices of followers of Jesus. And that's been the case for 2,000 years. So today we're beginning a new teaching series that we're calling Grappling with Scripture in which we're going to focus on some of the questions we have about this book, about Scripture. Because we do have questions about this book. Like, where'd the Bible come from? And if this is supposed to be kind of a rule book for life, how come the rules at times don't seem to make sense? And doesn't the Bible contradict science? Am I supposed to just kind of ignore what science has already proven? And why does the God of the Old Testament often seem to be so angry and violent while he is so loving and caring in other parts of Scripture? I mean, we have questions. So we're going to grapple, wrestle with some of the questions that many of us and many of our friends might be asking. And we're going to face them honestly and straightforwardly as we really try to expand how we understand the Bible. And it seems that a first question for us could simply be, so what sets the Bible apart from other impactful spiritual writings, like the Quran of Islam, or the Book of Mormon, or the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, or the Shastras, the Sutras of Buddhism, or contemporary spiritual writings like those of Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle, which all really present very different ideas of who God is, who we are, how we walk with God, what happens after this life. Okay, so why believe that this book is any more inspired and authoritative than other spiritual writings? That's a question I'd like us to consider today. And due to the question we're asking, our teaching this week is going to be a bit different than most weekends. It might feel like it's more of a lecture than a sermon, actually, because we're going to be getting a bit more technical in light of the question that we're considering together today. So you might want to take notes to allow you to refer to them later on if that would be of help. Okay, so let's start here. What does the Bible claim about itself? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy. This is from 2 Timothy 3.16. And as we hear, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And Paul wrote this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, now that term, breathed out by God, in the original Greek, it's a Greek word, theonoustos. 
And it really just literally means God breathed. Now, what's interesting is that's the only occurrence of this Greek word in all of first century literature. So yeah, so what does breathed out by God mean? Well, the apostle Peter gives some color to it in 2 Peter 1.21. He wrote this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the writers of Scripture were carried along, kind of prompted by God in some way as they wrote. So this book then has divine elements and also human elements. That's why over 3,000 times in the Bible, the various writers use the expression, thus says the Lord. In other words, they're saying there, okay, this is what God said. This is God speaking. Okay, now clearly, just because the Bible claims that doesn't mean it's true. But let's be clear on when the Bible itself stands on this question of inspiration. Because the Bible boldly asserts that God prompted the thoughts and hearts of individuals to write, not as automatons, but through their own individual personalities and styles and experiences and humanity. What he wanted to communicate to people in written form. Okay, so if the Bible is in some way uniquely inspired by God, there shouldn't should be some indication, some clues of that, right? I mean, there should be something distinctive about writings that are supposedly uniquely and authoritatively inspired by God. So does anything set Scripture apart? Is there really kind of a reasonable basis for believing that the Bible is God's inspired word for us? And I believe there is. So today I want to look at a basis for evaluating the trustworthiness, not just of the Bible, but really of any spiritual text. Really, uh, some basis by which we can hold up all religious texts to a standard. So what does set Scripture apart from other spiritual writings? What distinguishes these writings? Now, this isn't going to be a comprehensive list today, but I want to look at six clues or indicators of the uniqueness and inspiration of Scripture. And again, these aren't proofs of inspiration. None are conclusive by themselves, because at some point, faith is still required. Now, I'm not really big into acronyms, but this week it works, because our six clues form the acronym stamps, like in the Stampeders. I know, it just kind of came out that way. But as Calgarians, we like that, right? Okay, so let's begin at a basic level with the S of our acronym. What distinguishes scripture? For one, statistical clues and indicators. Statistical clues. Because the pattern of most religious or spiritual writings is really that the book has just one author or editor. I mean, for example, the Book of Mormon was written or recorded by Joseph Smith. Or the Quran. Muslims would tell us that it was revealed by God to Muhammad. 
But a particular uniqueness of Scripture is that the Bible contains 66 distinct books or letters that were written by 40 different writers of different generations, localities, and backgrounds. And, and they were kings, they were slaves, they were fishermen, they were physicians. And they lived in Israel, in Babylon, in Rome, and elsewhere from about 1400 BC to about 180. So the Bible was 1500 years in the making on three different continents in three different languages covering hundreds of different subjects, but with one central story. And on that, it is amazingly consistent that the God of creation, in response to our human defiance of him, offers new life, the redemption of humanity from our sin and lostness, one for the whole world by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son of God. To put it another way, the story of this book, you could say, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It is God reaching out to humanity. And together, these 66 writings, they give consistent answers to the most important questions that we can ask. Like, why are we here? Who created us? How can we get along? What is God like? How can we make peace with our creator? What happens after our brief life here that we live? And these 66 writings, when collected, they show no major contradictions. So on these central issues, Paul doesn't disagree with Moses. John doesn't disagree with David. Now, just consider religious teachers who do right by their own wisdom. Can you find even two who completely agree? <laughs> now, some individuals understandably point to the unresolved questions or apparent contradictions in the Bible, and we're going to be considering some of those in coming weeks of this teaching series. But those apparent contradictions are almost wholly on secondary matters. I, for example, that Matthew says there was one angel at Jesus' tomb, while John says there were two angels. You know, take all this, and this is why one scholar put it this way. Mere human wisdom could never achieve such unity. So one clue for us of the inspiration of Scripture is the statistical indicators. And then there's a second clue, I think. That starts with T. It's the testimonial indicators or clues. You know, I already mentioned what Scripture says about itself. Around 3,000 times in Scripture, the phrase, thus says the Lord, is used. Now, does that prove the point? No. But the Bible is unusually adamant about what it claims. So to support its claims, for example, the New Testament doesn't just say that Christ's resurrection happened. It also gives the names of eyewitnesses, those who could testify. And it did so within a time frame that enabled those claims to be checked, to be tested. I mean, so for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote this. This is in verse 3. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, that's the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul says here, Peter, James, the disciples, 500 others, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And most of them are still living. So go ask them. So we have on one hand, we have the testimony of Scripture. But there's also Christ's testimony. Now, even if you don't accept that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, you would likely at least hold a position, as most people do, that Jesus was a model of morality. He was a truth-telling person. He was a brilliant intellect. And it was Jesus, as much as anyone else in history, who declared relentlessly the inspiration of the Bible. In fact, he said that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but his words will never pass away. So Jesus repeatedly, categorically stated that the scriptures are the word of God. He testified to it. And then there's also the church's testimony. Now, you might respond to that by saying, well, of course the church accepts the Bible. That's like saying the mosque accepts the Quran. I realize that. But don't overlook this. A central part of why we hold to the authority of Scripture is because for 2,000 years, the church, the body of Christ, in all of its diversity, has declared and testified to Scripture's authority and transforming power. So in part, we recognize the divine uniqueness of Scripture because the early church recognized the authority of Scripture. I mean, for example, listen what the Apostle Peter wrote about the Apostle Paul's letter, which are now in Scripture. This is 2 Peter 3.16. Peter wrote, There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter viewed Paul's writings, even at this point, as being part of the other inspired scriptures. So we see these testimonial clues in scripture, in Christ, and from the church across history. So we have, for one, statistical indicators and also testimonial indicators. And then thirdly, there are archaeological, we could also call them historical indicators. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, okay, the Bible can't be relied on because it has so many inaccuracies. And I would encourage you, if someone says that to you, ask them graciously, Okay, show me where. Let's talk about them. Let's look at them together. I mean, are there questions or parts of Scripture that aren't as clear? 
I mean, are there certain elements of Scripture that are difficult to kind of bring together? Absolutely, without question. But again, almost all are on these secondary or tertiary theological or doctrinal matters. They're not on matters of the core creed of the Christian faith. But so often, that critique is used as an excuse, really, to just kind of push aside Scripture. I mean, for example, one common claim is that Jesus is never spoken of in historical writings apart from the Bible. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, maybe that's true. But then you go to the historical writings and you read, for example, Tacitus. He was perhaps the greatest Roman historian. And in 110 AD, he wrote a history of the reign of Nero in which he wrote this. Christ, from whom the Christians got their name, has been executed by sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. Or you go to the writings of Suetonius, who in 120 AD, in his book, The Life of Claudius, wrote this. As the Jews were making disturbances at the instigation of Christus, which is Christ, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Or you look at the writings of Pliny the Younger, who was governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he wrote to the emperor in 112 AD about this growing group called Christians. This is what he wrote. The Christians are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light when they sing an anthem to Christ as God. So in contrast to what some claim, I mean, Jesus is clearly spoken of in non-biblical writings. And then additionally, when we look at history, I think we need to ask, I mean, what caused a group of disheartened, fearful followers of Jesus to become these dynamic leaders of a movement that brought cultural and eventually societal transformation? All based upon their just unwavering claim that they themselves had actually seen the resurrected Jesus and that he was their Lord and Savior. I mean, what led the teaching of Jesus in this book to really transform and mold Western civilization? Because it was out of the teachings of Scripture and following Jesus of whom it testifies that the great Western universities, hospitals, relief organizations and agencies were first formed. So archaeological historical clues They are another helpful indicator of the uniqueness and inspiration of this book. And then a fourth clue, which I think is manuscript clues or indicators. Because a critique of scripture that I still hear often is, okay, how can we trust the Bible when it's being changed all the time? But historically, that actually isn't the case at all. Okay, so how do we know that the Bible we have actually reflects to some degree what was originally written? Well, one of the sources is manuscript evidence. I mean, you might know that we don't have the original version of almost any ancient writing of any kind. 
So we're really reliant on manuscripts. And a manuscript was just an ancient copy of an ancient text that was copied by hand, usually by a scribe. This was long before we had printing presses. And, and just to give you some perspective on this then, I mean, in school, you probably along with me, read and studied some of the great ancient writers. For example, just to consider a couple, Herodotus, maybe you know about him. He lived in 460 BC. He wrote a book called Histories, which is really one of the greatest works of histories, of ancient history that we have. We have eight manuscript copies of that great book. And there is a 1300 year gap between the date of its original writing and our oldest existing manuscript copy. But even from those eight manuscript copies, scholars are confident that we have accurate copies of what Herodotus actually wrote. Or consider Plato. Around 400 BC, he wrote his great work, The Republic. And, and we have seven manuscript copies of that book. And there is a 1,200-year gap between the time when Plato originally wrote it and our oldest manuscript copy of it. But for literary scholars, that's a reasonable number. Again, scholars are confident that these seven manuscript copies match the original and are indeed the writings of Plato. So you never hear, boy, we have doubts that this is what Plato actually wrote. Okay? So what about the New Testament? Well, we have 24,000 partial and complete manuscript copies of the New Testament. And in most cases, there's only around a 100-year gap between the original writing and our oldest manuscript. And among those thousands of by-hand copies, imagine doing in that, made across hundreds of years in languages from Greek to Latin to Syriac to Armenian, Coptic, and others, Scholars have found, on average, 8 to 12 misspellings or slight word order changes, additions, deletions per manuscript. 8 to 12. And, and these slight changes aren't hidden. In fact, the ones of any significance, they're noted in almost any study Bible you will find. And of those 24,000 manuscripts, there are only two New Testament passage of any kind of notable length that have found to be clearly later additions to the original text. Just two. One is Mark 16, 9 to 20. The other is John 8, 1 to 11. And apart from the King James Version, your physical Bible almost certainly notes that too. And even those two editions have no impact on key doctrine at all. Okay, and then in addition to those 24,000 ancient manuscripts, there are 19,368 direct quotations of the four Gospels alone in the writings of the early church fathers who wrote from the late first century on. Okay, so think about this. Even if we had no manuscripts of the actual New Testament, Virtually the entire New Testament could be reconstructed just out of the quotations of Scripture in the early church fathers. 
which is another great source of confidence regarding the authenticity and reliability of the scripture we have. Okay, so what about the Old Testament? How do we know that the version we have is what was originally written? Well, I imagine you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were scrolls or manuscripts that were discovered in caves out in Israel's Negev Desert in 1947. And these scrolls were written between about the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. So these manuscripts found in those caves, they predated by a thousand years the previous oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we have. And they include every Old Testament book except Esther. Okay, so did scholars find some differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the previous oldest biblical manuscripts that we had? Because there was a 1,000-year difference between the previous oldest copies we had of the Old Testament and the Dead Dead Sea Scroll copy. Meaning you had 1,000 years for the by-hand copying of biblical text to get messed up. So was there a difference? Yes, there was. But this is what was fascinating. When comparing, for example, the previous oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament book of Isaiah with the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts of Isaiah, which were a thousand years older, they found it is word for word identical in over 95% of the book. Word for word. And that Remaining 5% variation consists predominantly of just apparent slips of the pen or misspellings, which is just shocking consistency over 1,000 years. So we can look at clues or indicators that are statistical, that are testimonial, that are archaeological, and ones that are from manuscripts. And then a fifth clue about the uniqueness of scripture is the prophetic clues or indicators, the prophetic clues. You know, you might know that the Bible contains about 2,000 prophecies in which some future event or reality is predicted, including approximately 200 prophecies about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, while a few of these prophecies have not yet been fulfilled, for example, the second coming of Christ, There are no prophetic failures. And understand, these aren't vague prophecies, like there's going to be a sunny day sometime in the future. No. They are very specific ones, usually involving specific people and places. So you can study the Bible and see that it has predicted things historically that were absolutely accurate. I mean, for example, you just look at some of the specific national destructions that were predicted in scripture. Ezekiel 30 predicted the destruction of Egypt when Egypt was still this powerful empire. Or Nahum 1 predicted the destruction of Nineveh. Isaiah 13, the destruction of Babylon. Hosea 13, the destruction of Samaria. Ezekiel 25, the destruction of Moab and Ammon. So actual prophetic fulfillment, it really is a helpful clue or indicator in determining the trustworthiness and authority of a spiritual writing. So five of the clues of the uniqueness 
in inspiration of Scripture. The statistical, the testimonial, the archaeological, manuscript, and the prophetic. And you might respond to that by saying, well, other religions or spiritualities could make all those same claims about their spiritual writings. No, they actually couldn't. They couldn't point to all of them, maybe to two or three of them. Okay, so does that prove that Scripture is inspired? No. But these are in part, they are part of what gives just a strong indication of that reality. And let me mention a sixth, a, a final clue for us today. And that's the spiritual clues. The spiritual clues. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Jillian and I had a few different friends recommend a restaurant, and all of them said they had great food. So really, based on what they told us, we were pretty confident that the food there was likely really good. But it made all the difference when we actually went to that restaurant and experienced it for ourselves, how great the food was. I mean, we tasted it for ourselves. And, and then we knew experientially, okay, it's true. This place is great. Now, that's a really crass comparison, but it is somewhat like what we're discussing today. I mean, we can hear all of the different bases for identifying the uniqueness of Scripture. But I think the greatest clue or indicator is personally listening to, reading, receiving, trusting, and being transformed by this word. It really is the internal spiritual confirmation of the Holy Spirit. So can I encourage you to try it out? I mean, you might have often heard or even be thinking, you know what, all spiritual writings are essentially the same. Can I challenge you on that? I have found that not to be the case. I mean, would you just try the word of God? The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, clearly you can read scripture and then just kind of push it aside. But will you respond to how you are guided in it? Because it's when you and I respond to it, it's when we trust and follow that we come to know personally is spiritually transforming power. Okay, so do these six clues and indicators, they answer all our questions? Definitely not. There are certainly other questions that we're going to be considering in the coming weeks of this series. But friends, there is a thoughtful, reasonable basis for believing that these writings are indeed inspired by God. That this book is truly set apart by the God of creation. So would you pray with me to that God? Will you bow your head and close your eyes right now? And Father, how we thank you for your grace and goodness to us that you desire to speak to us. You've done that above all through your son, Jesus, the Logos. But we thank you how you speak to us even now through this word. And I pray, Father, for each one of us that as we come to your word, would you feed us with it? And Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying to us? This we pray that we might know you and enjoy you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen.
So good to be joined together with your friends and encourage you to join with us next week on site or online as we continue in this teaching series in a message that we're calling the Bible and Tyrannosaurus Rex. We're going to be looking at the Bible and science. How do those two fit together? Hope you can join in for that. And as you move into the rest of what this week holds for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.